into farming without being born into it is extremely difficult. And when the crops you want to grow are trees that take years to start producing, it seems nearly impossible. You need a decent amount of fruit to make cider. And uh, 35 trees was how we started. And they were a year old and we needed fruit. <laughs> Brendan Barnard found a love for cider making about seven years ago and eventually bought property to someday open his orchard-based cidery. After he and his wife were both laid off from their tech jobs, that someday came much quicker than expected. So he's been sourcing fruit from neglected, forgotten, and sometimes wild apple trees. That was really like an eye-opening experience. That's what we need to be planting. And so that just totally changed my theory of, of orcharding and what we should start doing. This new philosophy is an interesting one with insights into an alternative approach to farming with nature and value-added agriculture. Low water, low input, low nutrient systems, that can still produce. And I'm not generalizing to say that that necessarily can support a grocery market, because it can't. But I do think that there's a window for some of this value-added goods where there is a case to be made there. Like, your labor costs go up, your time horizon gets longer, but the fruit quality goes up and your inputs go way, way, way down. Cider maker and orchardist Brendan Barnard on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Well, hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the farmers, founders, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. And if you caught my episode with Dr. Greg Peck about six weeks ago or so, it was episode 318, you know I am absolutely passionate about cider. And if you're still not understanding why, then I think you maybe just need to listen to today's episode and also probably try some of our guests' ciders to understand the flavors and techniques and stories behind these incredible beverages. There's just so much to love, in my opinion. But even if I haven't converted you yet to cider, you're going to want to stick around for today's episode because it's an approach to agriculture that I guarantee will generate some thoughts to anyone with an open and curious mind. But before we go there, I'd just like to take a minute to recognize our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is the engine of Canada's agriculture industry, Calgary, Alberta. Located in the heart of Alberta's best growing land, Calgary has it all. With more than 22 facilities in Alberta playing a critical role in ag research and innovation, Calgary is a hub for precision agriculture and for agricultural technology. The Calgary region has proximity to customers, abundant primary agricultural commodities, and a growing cluster of value-added processing capacity. That's why multinational agribusiness leaders call Calgary home. In Calgary, they're leading the agribusiness revolution, and you are welcome to join. Visit calgaryagbusiness.com to learn more, and thank you so much to Calgary Economic Development for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. Okay, so now back to today's episode with Brendan Barnard of Posterity Cider Works. To set some context, to kind of zoom out a little bit, many of the episodes on this show are focused on efforts to scale solutions. Things like venture capital and commodity crops and hardware and software. And those are all incredibly important to continue to find ways to improve our global food system. But I also think too often there's a tendency in agriculture for us to think something has to have the potential to reach some sort of global scale to feed the world in order to even matter. 
And if you've listened to many of these episodes that I've done, you already know that I believe innovation and progress can take many different forms. Some will look like the solutions that can improve the way millions or billions of people eat. Others, which I equally enjoy, are stories of craft, of skill, of care, of community. Stories that are delightfully unscalable, but really no less important. Many times, these are the stories that can teach us the most, in my opinion, about agriculture and the most about ourselves. I think we have a story like that for you here today. It also helps that it ties together a few passions of mine, which are cider and nature and value-added agriculture. Today's episode speaks to several of the seven consumer values that I talked about back in episode 300, especially that need for a connection to an authentic source. Brendan and his wife, Chris, were living in the Bay Area working in tech. They had some fruit trees in their backyard in Half Moon Bay, and seven years ago, Brendan dove headfirst into cider making. Eventually, they bought property in Calaveras County, which is about 140 miles away or so, with a long-term plan of eventually starting an orchard-based cidery. Today, that is alive and well as Posterity Cider Works. Some changes in the timeline led them to start sourcing apples from what Brendan calls feral orchards, which have somehow survived and even thrived even though they've been abandoned with no care decades ago. These feral orchards have also spawned wild trees, which Brendan and Chris also forage for their low-intervention fine ciders that really reflect the places in which they're grown. They make these ciders with no sulfites, no added sugars, no preservatives, no artificial flavorings or colors, all of this while raising a family and starting and expanding their own dry-farmed, non-conventional, silvopastured orchard. We're going to talk all about that, but first, uh, a couple of quick cider terms just to be aware of because we sort of seamlessly slip them into the conversation. We'll mention ABV, which is alcohol by volume. This is hard cider, right? Not apple juice. The ABV goes up with the higher sugar content, which is fermented into more alcohol. These sugars, when they're in the fruit, are measured via a system called bricks, which is another term you're going to hear mentioned. And finally, Brendan and I will talk about racking, which is just moving the fermenting cider from one container to another, which is usually done to get it off the lees, which is the, the dead yeast and other particles that settle at the bottom of the container during the fermentation process. Or you might just rack it to a barrel or bottle or some other sort of secondary fermentation container, perhaps. All right, well, that's that's sort of the cider nerd language that I just wanted to get out there, but uh, I promise it won't all be cider-making talk here, although Brandon and I could talk all day about cider. There's a lot here about regenerative dry farming, which I, we've never really talked about. Of course, a lot of talk about trees, community, and the economics of starting and running a business like this. So enjoy today's episode with Brendan Barnard of Posterity Cider Works. About seven years ago is when we started making cider. After maybe three years, two years, I had gotten in and just done enough batches of raw experimentation. And I finally made one that was good enough that my wife was like, okay, maybe you're not actually crazy. Maybe we do look for some property to start doing this. So we put the first round of our orchard in four years ago, I believe. And then about six months after that, uh, we both got laid off from our Bay Area jobs in the same month uh, with a six-month-old baby. And we were like, I think that's a sign. I think we're doing this. Like, <laughs> So we, we left the Bay Area. We moved out. And really, like the plan had originally been a little bit more circumspect. 
of to wait several years for the trees to mature, you know, five, seven, 10 years in, move out, crops coming in, and that changed. And so we just started looking. So we reached out to the local paper and we said, hey, we're in an old area. There's some really, really amazing secret, like tucked away Sierra Valleys up here. We're looking for old trees. And a lot of people came out. We got like, I don't know, probably 50 or 60 leads off of that one piece in the tiny little local paper. It's not a big county. We've got, I think, 41,000 people in the whole county. But the history is pretty deep and people love these properties. And a lot of the time, these are really old, old trees, century plus. And it's often been six, eight decades, 10 decades since they were commercially viable. So they're really just sitting there and it's the great, great grandkids of whoever put them in and they don't know what they're doing. And so they haven't ever brought them back, but they want a reason to take pride in the property and they want to share it with people who can see what they must have been like. And so that's really what we started to do is we just followed up on the like, well, I don't have any trees, but my cousin has grandpa's old property. And the last time I was out there 20 years ago, there were like 10 trees down at the bottom of the hill. And so we just followed up and we started finding some really, really special properties, like fifth gen in the same family, original homesteads that proved up in the 1870s. And in some cases, like trees that go back probably that far, like 1880s, 1870s, And that's really where we started making our cider in bulk. Like you need a decent amount of fruit to make cider. And uh, 35 trees was how we started. And they were a year old and we needed fruit. (laughs) That's amazing. And so, I mean, I think we shouldn't gloss over the fact that this is in California where you don't get any rain during what most people would consider the growing season. And you have fires in this area and these trees have just endured. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's. It's really, really special when we get out to some of these places. So when we when we started our orchard, I was not super sophisticated on the orcharding side. Like we went with predominantly M111 rootstock, which is known for being tolerant of heavy soils, which we have. We're on pretty much pure clay. We've got about a half inch of topsoil and then clay with a ton of rocks in it. And they're also known for being somewhat tolerant of drought. And that was about as far as I'd gotten. And then we get out to some of these properties And you see an apple tree that's 110, 120 years old. It's 45 feet tall. And the last time somebody lived on the property was 1905. And no one has irrigated it since. And no one has fertilized it since or pruned it or given it any care. And there's 400 pounds of fruit on it. That was really like an eye-opening experience. That's what we need to be planting. And so that just totally changed my theory of, of orcharding and what we should start doing. Obviously, like you said, like these trees haven't been watered in 60, 80, 100 years of temperatures in the summer over 100 degrees and freezes down to 15. This is the vigorous, vigorous stuff that can survive with minimal inputs. That's amazing. And I mean, it's it, to state the obvious here a little bit, the fruit year after year after year has just been going to the ground and rotting. And I, yeah. mean, I, I imagine yeah. wild animals have been eating. It goes to the bears, it goes to the wasps, it goes to the deer. And in some ways, that's that's honestly also a delight because what that means is that on the edges of these properties, we find wild trees, which is super, super fun for me. Apples go wild pretty quickly. One or two generations of crossing and back crossing. And occasionally you find some really, really wild stuff that has these incredibly punchy, bold flavors where you are starting to get into 
wine grape levels of sugar. We're talking like 28 bricks, 13, 14% potential alcohol, intense flavors, aromas, tannins. And it's just a wild tree that's growing 100 feet down just off the creek from an orchard that was planted 100 years ago. And so there's just, there's an immense bounty to draw on, both in terms of our cider making and the fruit that goes into it. And then also just, you've got that huge, huge, like survivorship effect of what works and what can we learn from this? That is really cool. And what about, you know, logic would say if I had these old trees on my property that I have never harvested and I found out somebody wants to do something with, I should be overjoyed to just give them to them. But I've dealt with enough people to know there's probably somebody who says, well, you're going to profit from this. So shouldn't I get some money? You know, how does that part work? Well, we, we pay for the fruit because really our goal is to give people a reason to keep these things around. A lot of the time they start to get seen as a nuisance, right? Like they bring in bears, they bring in deer. When the fruit all drops, your land is covered in wasps going crazy on it. Like they start to get seen as a problem. And really, though, it's, you know, it's great, great granddad's inheritance to you. And we want to get out there before they get cut down for being a nuisance or because you think you can make more money, for example, growing weed. It's a cash crop. And so a lot of these older properties, they change hands and people need to make a dollar from the land. And if there's an orchard there and a decent well, they're going to cut it down and put in weed. And so really, we, we do pay for the fruit. Because, you know, we want the money to stay local in the county. That's part of why we're getting all of our fruit from here is because we think that it's special fruit. And that, you know, that deserves to be compensated. And then also just to give people that financial incentive, like, it's not a ton of money, but, you know, we're taking the fruit away. It's not causing you the problem anymore. And we're paying you. And hopefully you start to see that thing that's 100 years old as an asset again. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I heard about a, a cidery in Wyoming. I think it's actually the only cidery in Wyoming that how they got their start is like the community was actually paying them to go get rid of fruit so that the bears wouldn't come into town. It's in Jackson, Wyoming. So, I mean, to your point, like it actually is a bit of a service as well. Now, I have heard that some fruit, it actually improves it if, if it can kind of sit a little bit before you press it. Are you working with that at all? Or is this pretty much pressed right away? It super, super depends on the variety. Yeah. Um, so some fruit absolutely improves in storage. Red Delicious is a perfect example of that. You basically cannot pick it ripe ever. It's not going to come off the tree with anything less than maybe 5% residual starch. If you want to convert that over to sugar, you've got to let it sit for some amount of time. And there's a lot of varieties like that, that either they're super, super dense, uh, like Arkansas Black is one of my favorite apples. And that one is a classic American keeping apple that goes back, I think, to the late 1700s, early 1800s. And they have this really, really thick, waxy skin. And they will keep for like four or five months without even being in like true cold room temperatures. Like if it's below 50, they will keep for months on end. And most of the time through that process, they're changing. And so it really depends on the variety. So some stuff, maybe if we let it sit, we'd get more sugar out of it, but we'd get less acid. And if what we're looking for in that blend, in that tank is an enhanced acid profile, then I'm going to press it fresh. And then other times, maybe sugar goes down and acid goes down, but we get some really nice aromatics if we let it sit for two or three months, it starts to come out with some different character. And then other stuff like press it right away. It's ready right away. And it's only going to get degraded. 
So yeah, it really depends on the variety. And a lot of the time, these are trees that don't have names anymore. The records are gone. There's no tree tags on these. And so it's just year after year iteration with the fruit and figuring out like, okay, what does it do when we do this? What does this particular tree lend itself to? That is really cool. And so I, I imagine, you know, from the newspaper, somebody calls you, you say, yeah, sure. I'll come check out and see what you have. What are you doing out there? Are you going out there and pulling apples off the tree and tasting them? You have some sort of um, device that tests the bricks and that sort of thing, or kind of what's that process look like to see, like, can I do something with this? Yeah. So I generally like to go out for a lot of these properties, maybe the first visit in like August, which is often too early for most apples. And occasionally it's too late for some, some crab apples and stuff. Some varieties are just really early croppers, June, July, for some Gravensteins, depending on the year, it's not uncommon. So we might miss a little bit. But for the most part, once we start to get to August, the fruit has developed enough for me to start guessing and saying like, okay, how much starch is in this? So we do like an iodine test or even just taste it. Like if you get that raw potato feel, depending on how much of it, that's starch. That's what you're tasting. And so you can start to gauge how far does it have to go until it's ripe. And then we come back and we, we harvest it <laughs> if it's what we're looking for. And a lot of the time it is, even if by dint of just the environmental conditions, um, even if it's not a particularly unusual variety, you know, Red Delicious is 140 years old. We find that and it's not particularly renowned for its quality today. But the older cultivars, the older sports of it had a little bit more character. And then when you add on to that, the environmental conditions of it's hot, it's really, really hot. And that makes the tree pack on more sugar and more aromas. And so what we wind up seeing is that these dry farmed varieties, generally 10 or 15% more sugar than the same variety under traditional cultivation. And going with that, often more tannin, more aroma, more acid. And so just dry farming them, just having 100 years growing in the single place, we start to see character off of trees that would normally just get ignored. Like you tell people today that you're making red delicious cider, they're going to walk right past it because it's, <laughs> it's it does not have a good reputation anymore. So does that mean because you're getting higher sugar contents, are you getting a higher ABV in the ciders that you're making? Yeah, so we we're getting higher ABVs and then also some of the flavor and aroma compounds are alcohol soluble and so we bring a little bit more of that into the cider as well. And then also they are more intense. You know, your crop size tends to go down with dry farming, but your intensity and aroma tend to go up. And it's popular with wine grapes, it's becoming more popular, I should say, for exactly that reason. And there's absolutely no reason that it, it doesn't work for apples either. It's the exact same. But people don't really think of dry farming trees anymore. And again, that's what we generally find. Cider is understudied and cider apples are also understudied compared to wine. There's like a very critical window of industrialization and refining scientific growing techniques that wine grapes got and cider apples didn't. And so it's really fun from one one side of things in that like we're always breaking new ground and finding weird new things. But it's also tough because it means that there's really nobody to look to for advice about where to go. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. You know, going back when you decided like, hey, this is a sign, we're going to go at this full time. I imagine you needed to probably get larger commercial equipment to produce enough to kind of make the whole thing work financially. Is that true? And if so, like, 
how are you able to pencil out in a business plan or whatever that looks like? Like, okay, this is actually going to work. I'm going to spend a lot of time finding apples, picking apples, making cider, and kind of like do enough of it that it all works financially. I will let you know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I mean, honestly, as commercial operations go, we're still super, super tiny. Like last year, I made just about a thousand gallons and we're like microscopic as these things go. My biggest tank is about a three and a half barrel system. So 140 gallons. We've got, I think all told about 13 barrels worth of storage fermentation. And really a lot of that is driven by our approach. So we're not trucking in juice. We're not trucking in apples from Chile so that we can run all summer long and follow the harvest around the world. We're really trying to take a very, very fruit-based approach. So in a given week, whatever's coming in from the orchards that we've found, that's what's getting harvested. That's what's going in a tank. And so that means that during harvest season, we need like a lot of production uh, volume. And then it sits a little bit idle uh, during the summer, which is kind of a bummer. So this year, we just started doing like some stone fruit, some jerkums, and we'll see how that goes. As this is kind of equated, we're still super, super tiny. Yeah. So it takes about, I generally say it takes about 12 pounds of fruit to make a gallon of cider into the tank. And then from there, it goes down. The yield goes down as we rack it. Uh, We clarify by letting it settle out and we rack it off the leaves. And so, yeah, it's a decent volume of fruit that we bring in. So last year, if I say about a thousand gallons, we're talking about, you know, 15,000 pounds of apples that we brought in from all of these old orchards and stuff around the area. Wow. And you're, you're, you're pressing all of that yourself. Yeah. So we do, we do everything, which in some ways is definitely harder. A lot of the commercial operations that are bigger than us, like they don't even see the apples at all. They're only dealing in juice. They don't have presses. They don't have crushes. They're getting it delivered uh, basically like gasoline. Like it comes in in an 8,000 gallon tanker truck and it gets pumped directly into a tank. And that's easier for sure. Your labor costs shift around. But it also doesn't give you the same level of control over the final product. So, you know, I'm going out to these orchards. I am picking what trees to pick in a given week. We're sorting the fruit. We know it's clean going in. And so that's one of the things that lets us avoid using sulfites, which honestly started as an aesthetic choice. I kept getting these really unpleasant sulfur aromas. And I was like, this isn't working. This isn't what I want. And so sulfite is a chemical pasteurizer. It's in basically all wine and cider. And it wipes the microbial slate clean. It kills everything so that the only thing that's working on your juice is the yeast that you've chosen. And that's basically how all wine and cider gets made. There's a handful of us doing natural wines and ciders, which is harder. You have to be more rigorous about your fruit cleanliness. And there's some variability. Like the wild yeast is going to be doing its thing. And it's a little bit more unpredictable. But the nice thing is really like, So sulfite, the sensory threshold for it is like 50 to 60 parts per million. And the generally quoted minimum effective dosage is like 40 to 50 parts per million. And then the legal limit is about three times that because, again, most of the larger operations, they're trucking juice around three or four different stops to different facilities for processing. And they're sulfiting it every single time to guarantee that it stays clean. And so you really start to build up and wine can get away with it because wine tends to be bolder in flavor and it can mask that a little bit more. Cider is much more delicate and I feel like you start to see it super, super fast. So that's why I originally stopped using it. 
But there's other benefits, like about 12% of the population has a mild sulfite allergy. And basically, everybody starts to feel it a little bit as you start to creep towards that legal limit. Even if you don't have that inherent allergy or sensitivity, when you start hitting 150, 180 ppm, everybody starts to get a little bit headachey and flushed. So if you've ever had that, like a glass of wine and you're feeling like flushed and headachey and a little uncomfortable in your skin, that can be a sulfite reaction where you had a, a wine or a cider that was pushing that legal limit. And even if you don't already have that sensitivity, you're feeling it. So there's a lot of reasons that we stopped doing that. And one of the things that lets us continue to, to operate that way is the small scale. Right. If you're just picking uh, apples yourself, how long does it take you to pick, uh, I don't know, 100 pounds of apples? Super, super depends on the trees and the property. So a lot of the more modern orchards, they're on dwarf rootstock. The trees are eight feet tall because that's how tall you can reach unassisted to pick fruit. They're pretty open in the center so you can reach through. They're made for easy harvesting. And so when we go down to one of those, uh, maybe just inside the Central Valley, there's one that we've been harvesting about an hour away from us. And there we can do about 300 pounds per person per hour, no issue. And so that's an easy day. And there's other properties that it's blackberries 8, 10 feet tall across two acres of 100-year-old apple trees. You can barely get to the trees. you got to bushwhack your way in. And we're talking 100 pounds in four hours. And so it's really, it's a multi-year process for some of these properties of finding the trees totally unkempt, figuring out that they're good for cider, paying people for the fruit, showing them how to take care of them, coming back, maybe doing some pruning, helping them thin the blackberries. And the next year... There's more fruit, they get paid more and they say, this is worth it. Like, let's get in there with a bobcat and rip out more of this undergrowth. And so three, four years in now, some of these orchards are actually becoming meaningfully productive again, where year one, we got a hundred pounds off of, like I said, like two acres of trees. Year two, eh, maybe 300, 400 pounds. That's enough to make a little bit more cider. And then this last year, that same orchard gave us something like 800 pounds. And that's all based on access and accessibility, being able to get in, having that clear financial return on your time. And these guys, they're great. Like it's a family outing for them. Property's been in the family since 1910. It was last harvested commercially in the early 80s. And one of the older sisters is I think in her 70s, and she's the only one who can remember it being productive. The other ones like grew up after the family moved down into the valley, but they turn it into a family outing. Like the kids and the cousins come up. It's like six or seven people who go out there and spend a day harvesting the fruit. And it's not a ton of money. Like depending on the fruit quality, we're still talking 30 to 75 cents a pound. And so it's not a ton of cash. But it's something and it's a family time and it's something coming from a place that a lot of people want a reason to love again. And so, yeah, like 300 pounds an hour, 100 pounds in four hours. It really just depends on how that orchard, how those trees, those wild trees are growing. And sometimes they're a pain and it would not be worth it if we weren't doing exactly the style of cider that we're doing. If we were trying to fill a 50,000 gallon tank, this would be insane. But when we find really cool stuff and we've only got to get, you know, in some cases I make a seven gallon batch still and it's 30 bottles, Um, but it's really, really special. 
And there's a market for that. Sure. Yeah. And, and maybe talk about markets. Obviously, you're selling direct. You have your tasting room and you have uh, your cider club, which we definitely encourage people to join. We'll put a link in the show notes to that. You're also establishing some wholesale accounts so, as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we've got um, a couple of bottle shops in the Bay Area, a couple of restaurants uh, locally and in the Bay. We do the direct-to-consumer route, which is just super, super valuable for many, many ag producers. That middleman cut is challenging. And so, yeah, the, the direct-to-consumer route is crucial. And yeah, we've got the, the bottle shop in the front. We've got the tasting room on the side. And then the middle of the building is the production space. And so, yeah, we do tastings on the weekends and bottle sales. And all told, it seems like we're going to be viable. <laughs> um, you got to jump off and, and kind of see what happens at some point, right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, so like right now, um, a lot of what we're doing is starting to refine like labor forecasts for different orchards and like how much, what is our actual cost of goods after a year of doing this at an actual commercial scale, which like you could never find out without doing it um, the way we're doing it. There's no data out there. There's nobody else who's who's got forecasts available for that. Yeah. Well, I mean, everything about, you know, the brand, the the bottle, the quality, the craftsmanship that goes into it screams like premium product. So I, I imagine... You know, I mean, it would be comparable to a premium wine, in my opinion. Yeah. And I mean, that's in some ways part of the challenge is that making that case to people that cider deserves to be taken as seriously as wine that is capable of similar amounts of flavor sophistication as wine and as craft beer. A lot of what's out there, it really is. It's like it's like alcoholic apple soda. Corn syrup is one of the bulk ingredients. They don't care about the variety. It's in a can. It's diluted down to be easy enough to drink. It's a totally different beast. And it's cheap because of that. There's a ton of adjuncts and a ton of mechanization that brings the costs down. And when you're trying to make the case to somebody that, no, this cider is five times more expensive than that for a reason, it can be daunting. Most of the time people get it though. Like you tell them what we're doing, why we're doing it, and then they taste it and they get it. And they say, yeah, okay, I'll sign up and I'm taking a couple bottles home. This is great. And that's really, really rewarding to see that transition of like, well, I'm here, but I'm skeptical. And like, yeah, this is great. Sign me up. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been my experience as well as I, as I become more of an advocate for, you know, for the industry and, and trying good ciders. People, when, when they taste it, they get it. Was it a hard decision when you were planting your apple trees to say like, okay, I have a limited amount of acreage. I could really use maybe a backstop in my supply. So maybe I will go like the high density route here for a lot of production. And then I can, you know, obviously still look for these uh, wild varieties or these heritage varieties elsewhere. Was that a hard decision or was that something that you were pretty dead set on? And I mean, walk us through your thinking about that. Yeah. So um, year one, when we planted, we did 35 trees at about 15 by 17 foot spacing. Um, so 15 in row, 17 between rows for ease of getting like a truck or a tractor up there at some point. And like I said, we just use a very standard M111 rootstock. It's old variety. It's fairly predictable. Even that was a little bit of a stretch. Like when I tell people what we've planted at that point, they'd be like, oh, M111, well, you're in for the long haul. Because it's still so different from the super high density plantings. So 
after that, when we started seeing what was possible, um, and I really started to look into seedling rootstocks, the potential vigor there, and really there's there's just this incredible compounding effect of like these trees, they're significantly larger, meaning that they'll produce more shade canopy, so they'll have more cooling effect on the ground. So you'll lose less moisture to evaporation. And like they also have a tap root, which means they can go down and look for their own water more. And they're also super high vigor, which if you're on the East Coast would be a nightmare to prune and deal with. But out here, what that means is that you still get a good growth rate, even if the tree is stressed. And so there really is just that function stacking of like, why does this make sense? Yeah, no, it does. And so this year, we blew that out to, I think we did mostly 18 by 18 spacing, a little bit further apart. And that is a compromise. If I really had unlimited space, I would probably be really doing what we find in some of these properties, which is like 40 by 40, just huge, huge, huge spacing between trees. And then filling the space between with maybe some dwarves in the shade canopy to trial new varieties or to do understory crops of some kind in that space between as they're growing. But that's that's a super, super low density. So it is a compromise. Uh, 20 by 20 is still bananas compared to it's about 100 trees per acre. And when you go down in the Central Valley, you know, they're hitting 700 trees per acre. It's an incredibly low density system compared to that. And I mean, because of that, it's also comparatively low input. Like we don't have to bring in gallons and gallons and gallons of water to support all of that. And it really, again, it just, if you break out of the traditional mindset, it really starts to make sense. You know, like down in the Central Valley, the ground table is dropping faster than they can drill new wells. Like people drill a new well a hundred feet deeper than the old one, and it gives them two years. And now it's gone. It's not going to last. Uh, <laughs> You've got like the the soil salinity building up because of flood irrigation and excessive fertilizer applications. You've got that 80% evaporative loss of all your water. I saw a thing the other day that said that they're expecting a half million acres to have to be fallowed in the Central Valley in the next decade because of soil salinity and another million at, in the decade following that. And like, it just starts to make sense. Like we need to be looking at low water, low input, low nutrient systems that can still produce. And I'm not, I'm not generalizing to say that that necessarily can support a grocery market because it can't. But I do think that there's a window for some of this value-added goods like cider where there is a case to be made there. Like your labor costs go up, your time horizon gets longer, but the fruit quality goes up and your inputs go way, way, way down. Yeah. Well, talk to us about kind of the future. What are the next steps for you and... You know, kind of what do you hope others who this resonates with, other than buying some cider, you know, what do you kind of hope that they can take from this? Because uh, I've been actively looking for stories that do a good job of integrating nature and agriculture. And I, I think this one obviously is is perfect for that. It's not easy to find a lot of stories where it's like, okay, this is really something where we're, we're starting to blur those lines a little bit better. Cause I think that's kind of what's going to be needed in the future. But anyway, so talk to us about kind of the future for you and for, for posterity and kind of where, where this goes. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, immediate future, uh, right after this, I'm going up into the mountains to check out a property that I haven't seen in about two years. I'm super excited about it. This one goes back to 1890 and there's like maybe 10 original apple trees and probably three dozen wild ones that are just of varying ages uh, from like 70, 80 years to ones that are a year old. And so 
part of the future is continuously trying to find more of this wild fruit, the stuff that has that really cool character. The other side of it is we just expanded our own home orchard. So we're at about 250 trees now. We put in about 150 this year. And mostly on that, like I said, the crabapple rootstocks, um, the seedling trees, the full-size stuff. Um, so anybody who is curious about growing trees, like I would love to talk to you about the powers of the full-size tree, especially in challenging climates. So I really think that it makes sense to start considering for California. Water is not going to get much heavier on the ground. And so the dry farming, um, the silvopasture, building soil fertility, I think it's really powerful. And yeah, I'd love I'd love people to start thinking about alternatives to conventional cultivation. 700 trees per acre is not sustainable. And I'd, I'd love I'd love to, to start seeing that change. Yeah, I love I love that different mindset. And, and silvopasture, meaning integrating livestock with all this? Yeah, yeah. So we have um, what we've got a system of about three pastures leading out to the orchard. And then the orchard perimeter is all fenced so they can run through that. And then we've got another pasture along one other edge of the property. So we can graze about 85% of the property at this point after this last fencing push. And I got it done a little bit too late this year. So the forage quality was kind of garbage once they actually got out to the orchard and they started going after my trees, which is, again, it's part of it. Like this is this is in a lot of ways a, a test bed for methods that work. And if down the road we want to expand, what are the takeaways for that? Like, how can we do this better and, and make fewer mistakes, which is is absolutely part of it. Like the first year we put the orchard in, we had a huge problem with the... Um, the little tree hopper insects that they drink the sap, then they dig into the bark and lay their eggs and they wind up creating all of these pits in the bark. And we had a huge, huge problem and I didn't want to spray. And so the next year, my solution was, okay, we're going to turn this into a meadow. We're going to let the grass stay tall to bring in as many birds as possible. And they're going to deal with these bugs for me. And it totally worked. But the downside... <laughs> of tons of grass and ground cover is that then you have rodent pressure. The voles, the gophers, the rabbits, they're not getting eaten by the hawks anymore. And so they're just, they're going nuts. And so, you know, it's this ebb and flow of like experiment, fail, half succeed, iterate again. And it's really fun, but it's definitely challenging. And yeah, I mean, I'd love to just keep stacking up these learnings and really start to come up with a system that could be implemented in other places with fewer mistakes for other people. <laughs> well, everybody's got to got to make some mistakes, but no, I, I really appreciate this. And I appreciate how much you share on Twitter. I've really enjoyed following your journey and, and what you're doing. It's uh, It makes for some interesting content and, and some great cider. So uh, we'll send people, I guess, to the website to buy some cider any, anywhere else that we should send them. Oh, golly. Um, yeah, posteritysiderworks.com. I'm working on a page that is kind of about some of this, about our orchard practices and our philosophy of growing trees and finding trees. It's not up yet, so this was uh, really helpful and hopefully will we'll shape some stuff that winds up going up. All right. What an awesome conversation there, Brendan. Thank you so much for being on the show. Make sure all of you listening, go buy some of their cider. They ship to several different states. If not all the states, just go to their website, posteritysiderworks.com. Of course, it will be in the show notes. I would also encourage you to follow Brendan on Twitter. He's at 
Intractable Lion. We'll link to that. And uh, also follow, follow Chris on Twitter as well. I've enjoyed following both of them. Uh, she's at Chris M. Barnard uh, on Twitter as well. Link to all those in the show notes. Go check it out. Go buy some cider. I personally became a member of their cider club, which I would encourage you to check out as well. That includes getting bottles shipped to you. I think it's three times per year. Uh, so just go to the website. And uh, as you heard, they've got a lot of unique different ciders and so uh, it'd be cool to get an assortment at least that's how i'm looking at it for me personally really enjoyed that episode i hope you did too as always thank you so much for your time and your attention i never take it lightly i'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation 